welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Welcome back to Turn the Page. I'm your host today, Jen, and I am here with a fantastic author of a book that came out a little while ago, but is uh, is going to be revisiting the market in paperback form. Uh, I really love this book, and I am so excited to talk about it. So let's get right into it. Could I ask you to introduce yourself and your book, please? Hi, my name is Carolyn Hayes, and I'm the author of Letter to My Transgender Daughter. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing this really beautiful book with me. I had um, I spent a lot longer with it than I really thought I was going to because I just found myself thinking about so much and seeking out other texts and uh, really doing a lot of like interesting work around it. Um, before we get into the book itself, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your journey to the book, um, your other writing experience and how you came to this project. Um, yeah, well, I'm writing under a pen name. So Carolyn Hayes is not my actual name. Um, but I've written a lot of books. I've published a lot of novels. Um, and I've published with, you know, I've had a New York Times Notable Books of the Year. And I've published with Simon & Schuster and Hachette and, and lots of, um, you know, Random House, you know, you name it. And then lots of overseas publishing houses as well. Um, and so, yeah, this is my first um, nonfiction work, although I've also had, uh, you know, essays and op-eds in the New York Times and the Washington Post and NPR and things like that. So I'm a little incognito. <laughs> um, that's super interesting. And I wondered uh, right off the bat, you know, I really one of the things I love about it, among many, is the structure. Um, it, it really um you know, it all sort of pivots on this moment of a particular knock at the door, which we can talk about. Um, and I'm wondering, did you find that, you know, one, did writing nonfiction in long form present new challenges for you? And two, did you find yourself drawing on your the skills of a novelist to write it? Oh, definitely. Yeah. The novelist skills came in. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that I've worked in large scale, a lot of times it's just when you first start writing, it's very hard to hold something that large architecturally in your brain, you know, book length. Um, and so I have a lot of, um, I had a, yeah, a lot of experience doing that and being able to see something structurally that, you know, that's, you know, 200, 300 pages, you know, I, even more I've done that. So it was very helpful. Yeah. And I, and, you know, I like going into scene. Um, I think it's important to, to show people what it felt like by being really embedded in those moments. And so a lot of that is the work of a novelist. Hmm. Um, yeah, the book is uh, very um, engaging in an emotional way. And I think it engenders a lot of empathy in the reader, which is clearly one of its aims, <laughs> which is fantastic. Um, and so I'm wondering, um, you know, one of the the messages that you talk about is how as a parent, um, and, you know, maybe I'm putting the cart before the horse a little bit, but um, one of your messages is, is about loving better, you know, when you discover that one of your children uh, is queer or is dealing with a trans identity that is, you know, something that they're revealing to you for the first time. And I'm wondering, um, you know, that idea of loving better, um, you know, how does it drive the book and sort of like, how does it drive um, both what you're 
doing for your daughter with the book and what you are doing for perhaps um, the parents of other transgender children? I know that's a huge question and I apologize, but. <laughs> no, it's actually broader than that because it's not just, it's it's, it's all children. I mean, it's, it, we, we need to do a better job you know, with all of our kids. I mean, it's, it's not just that. I mean, you could, you know, have a father. I mean, you know, Jeff in the book, um, my husband, you know, he he was a division one, um, you know, athlete and then played, you know, kind of pro soccer before the MLS. And so, you know, he, his identity was so wrapped up in that. And, and so many sports dads, you know, kind of shove their identity of sports down into their children. So many times we confuse you know, and we're, we're having children to right wrongs or to be an extension of ourselves in the world. And we really confuse our identity and their identity. Um, and sometimes really lovingly, you know, we want them to have a better life than we had. We don't want them to make the same mistakes that we made. But there's so much um, denying the fact that this is an individual human being who is going to make their way in the world in and is not you, you know, is not a reflection of your hopes and dreams. They have their own hopes and dreams. And so it's particularly true, of course, when you have, um, if you're, a, you know, a straight parent, um, cisgender, you know, not trans at all, and and you suddenly have a child who is changing, you know, I, you know, gender identity. Well, their gender identity was always clear. <laughs> They're changing for the outside world. Um, those parents really struggle because especially if they haven't, you know, kind of, if, if, if they're blurring those identities, you know, um, and it's really hard for them in that they've, they've, they've created a whole future narrative for their child that they're really invested in. That's very imaginary. Mm -hmm. We all do it. We want to see our children happy in the future. Um, but when some when a kid tr changes um, and goes through transition, um, for some parents, all of that goes away and then they have nothing, no future. They can't see it. And that's compounded by the fact that they also possibly don't know that there are lots of trans people uh, doing, you know, dentists and, <laughs> you know, judges and, you know, in the military and uh, plumbers and whatever. They're living their lives. Um and so they don't know that because, you know, there are so few trans people, statistically speaking. Um, so it, 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 you know, but that that holds true for all parents. You know, all parents really have to go through that process where they let the child be themselves mm -hmm. in all the different shapes that can take and all the different ways that happens. Yeah, it's, it seems like it frames parenting in a sort of um, collaborative way rather than a, a hierarchical process. You know, is that something that like, to you is, is kind of part of it? Yeah, well, good luck with hierarchical, like good <laughs> luck. I mean, God bless, Godspeed, if that's your thing. Um, all parenting is humbling. Mm. It should be humbling. Um, it is a huge job. Mm -hmm. And if you think you've got it all right, which we kind of thought we did, we were kind of cocky parents. Um, if you think you've got it all down to, and you, you're, you know, you're raising this child and then you've got a system and you're raising the next child exactly the same. Cause you've got a system, you got a third child and you're raising that kid exactly the same. Cause you got a system. You're not parenting individuals. Mm -hmm. Like you are someone running a system and it, it just breaks down. Um, yeah, so we really have to see each child as a human being. We have to see each human being and, you know, adults as a human being, each on their own path. But yeah, I, we, yeah, I, yeah, it, it should be humbling. It, parenting has, has been humbling for me from the very start, you know, mm -hmm. um, and I think that's just doing it right. 
Yeah, it sounds very humbling and also very um, vulnerable, you know, and there is, it feels like a lot of vulnerability went into the writing of this book because, you know, you do examine your own parenting skills and you look at choices that you made and you evaluate them again, like with your new knowledge uh, and uh, your new experience. And so could you talk about like what that kind of vulnerability entails, like for a writer and for a parent um, and maybe also like about um, like privilege? Because I think you get really vulnerable about exploring privilege too and, you know, relative access to things. And could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think I'd like to just talk about cowardice first. So, you know, in, in kind of talking about the book, you know, very early on in the first pages of the book, you find out that we've had a child who has recently transitioned from, you know, the child was assigned male at birth, but made it very clear that she was a girl, that we were getting it wrong, that God got it wrong, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and then as we were kind of grappling with that and trying to figure that out, which was, was not simple, um, we did eventually, you know, allow our now daughter to, um, you know, uh, wear the clothes she wanted to put a bread in her hair. Um, we started using female pronouns and, and letting people know, uh, shortly thereafter, we got a knock at the do door from, uh, the Department of Children and Families, uh, someone had made an anonymous call um, accusing us of child abuse for supporting our child. Um, and so that, of course, wrecked our lives in many ways. Uh, it's not a tragedy. You know, it it built it built resist resilience. We came together as a family and we rallied. But, it, you know, it certainly did absolutely change us fundamentally. Um and eventually, uh, you know, a year later after that knock at the door and all of the kind of chaos that ensued, um, we did leave. We moved. Mm. Um, and so in the book, I talk about that move and how, um, you know, I don't know how my daughter will one day see that in her, into her 20s, into her 30s, whether that was, I mean, I, I think it was the right move. I don't know the other move. I can't see that trajectory, but. Uh, I do know that when I am hearing, you know, families now, because what happened to us, you know, became law in the state of Texas, for example, you know, the governor there um, a couple of years ago said any parent who is supporting their child who is transgender um, should be, you know, reported and um, investigated for child abuse. So um, I have seen families who've stayed. Um, I've seen families who had no choice because we have a ton of privilege getting to that. We, just, we had the privilege to go. We had the money to go. We we, we figured out our jobs and re-coordinated, you know, mm -hmm. um, we we were able to leave. Um, and so there, when I look at the bravery of the people who, stay, who are staying in these red states, um, you know, where there have been over 500 uh, anti-trans laws passed, not passed, uh, introduced um, in the last year alone, um, you know, throughout the country uh, that are anti-trans. I mean, there's just such incredible beauty and bravery and staying. And so, I mean, I have to think about my own cowardice there, you know, mm -hmm. um, did we really, should we have stood our ground and said, no, this is, this is our place. We have a right to this place. You know, we talk about the United States of America, but, you know, for our family, we talk about the 18 states of America, because as my daughter looks at colleges, she's looking at about 18 states um, 
and Canada, you know, as places where she will be protected under law. Um, yes. So cowardice is something that I do talk about a little bit in the book, but has really hit me more and more um, as I see other families navigating all of this. That speaks to um, another thing that I think the book does really well, um, which is providing a lot of uh, context uh, of various kinds, like for what your family experienced. You go into the historical context of LGBT history and uh, what sort of led to the present moment in those terms, uh, but also the political context of, as you have just said, the increasing discrimination and the decreasing uh, legal protection. So um, I'm wondering what kind of research you did in both of these avenues and sort of like if that process of research sort of changed your own perspective uh, on the, on your daughter and on your, your own role as a mother. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things is that, you know, in, in so many ways, this is not my story to tell. It's my daughter's story to tell. Mm -hmm. Um, and so really had to go back in there and just kind of be, uh, a witness. Um, and so it is one of the first books. I don't, I don't know of any other books, um, where, you know, there was somebody kind of journalistically, taking notes throughout the child's, you know, the, the the trans child's childhood to really say, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm seeing. So I was really like, you know, um, bearing witness. Um, so that was the first bit of research was personal. Uh, the second, you know, is, is kind of the historical stuff was just incredible to see, you know, historians and anthropologists and all these different archaeologists, all these different people um, finding proof of trans people throughout history and throughout cultures. And um, so that was, you know, really groundbreaking for me, you know, to, to learn this incredibly rich history. Um, and then the current, you know, stuff, it it's a barrage just to keep up. Uh, especially during legislative session, uh, what is going on? Um, and that's terrifying. I mean, it's terrifying that in Florida right now on, on a campus um, at a state institution, a student uh, who's trans could use the bathroom. And um, if they don't leave when somebody screams at them, uh, they can be arrested um, just, just for being in that space. Um, so yeah, there's incredibly terrifying things out there that are going on right now. Um, yeah. And then also just to going kind of back to privilege again, but like, I didn't realize how much I thought that the universe and I had this agreement, like, I'm going to be the best mother I can. And we're good universe. Like, <laughs> uh, you're going to be okay with that. You're going to help me out here. Um, you know, and, and there's a lot in the book about faith and God, because I'm also a person of faith. Um, but you know how quickly I realized that I was, I was living a very white privileged, uh, American existence. And I have, you know, trans people, my family in particular has so much, uh, to owe, um, you know, African-Americans, uh, you know, civil rights history, um, the current struggles that facing the black community. I mean, the amount of work and the parallels there uh, are incredible. And so I'm just thankful that, you know, they fought so many battles because their playbook is, you know, just an incredible resource. Um, and it's also the way forward. We have to build coalitions. Um with each other. And then I got to do, you know, to see what LGBTQ folks have done. 
um, and and what the elders in this community, you know, what they fought for. Um, it was really such a privilege to do that work. And Jean Manford in particular, who was the founder of PFLAG, her story, Jean Manford, sorry, um, she was fantastic and her son, Morty. Um, so it was really, you know, yeah, I, I, it was a joy to, you know, be able to find ways structurally to put all of that history in there, not all of it, but to be able to put some of that history in, um, yeah. Hmm. There's also a ton of research on gender um, from a number of angles. Um, and as somebody, you know, as a brief aside, before I fell into libraries, um, I got a PhD in uh, gender history and I worked on medieval notions of gender and stuff like that. And the process of exploring gender theory from all of these disciplinary viewpoints, I found to be like transformative, not just for like my research and my career as a historian, but for my sense of myself, you know, and how I saw my place in the world and the world around me. So I'm wondering if there's anything about your own uh, research process that sort of like reframed things for you or about the world, you know, uh, did you find yourself uh, transformed at all by what you experienced and explored? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the irony is that my daughter supposedly went through a transition, but she knew who she was all along. Um, so really wasn't much of a transition. The rest of us had the, you know, the doors of our hearts blown wide open and got to experience all this different level of empathy that we just were blind to. Uh, we got to see how gender is everywhere all the time in ways that um, we we were blind to. Um, yeah. And, and then the personal stuff. I mean, I, you know, of course, like I, I, it's so important for me, especially as a young woman to understand like that, you know, gender is a social construct, right? That was just so liberating for me. Um, and just to know that I'd been put in a box and I'd been, you know, kept in that box and that so much of the world around me um, was dedicated to me staying in that box. Um, and, you know, that, and then just knowing the box existed, you know, was incredibly freeing and liberating. Mm -hmm. Um but of course, when it comes to my daughter, that doesn't really help all that much because gender is also something that is very clearly, it's almost one of our senses. I make the argument that it is a sense, like, mm -hmm. because, you know, we used to think that there was the senses, taste, touch, smell, da, da, da. we now know that there are many more senses, like equilibrium, um, knowing how close someone is, um, knowing where my arms and legs are in space and time, you know, like there are a lot of, a lot of, you know, knowing that I have to pee is actually one of our senses. Um, so, uh, but I kind of make the argument that knowing our gender is a sense, you know, it's something so core and deeply held in, in, in our bodies and in the map of our bodies, the neurological map of our bodies. Um, yeah. So, um, I think that I learned a lot, um, yeah, about gender as something much deeper. Um, and, and, you know, as a person of faith, like on the soul level. Um, and then I also, you know, kind of lightened up about, I think we all have as a culture. And I think that's why Barbie is making sense to us uh, coming out this year, where it might not have made as much sense to us coming out even just five years ago. But that we, you know, that there's a feminism is a big, huge umbrella and we can fit a lot of people under it. Um, the work, you know, Roxane Gay's work in, in Bad Feminist um, and things like that, you know, really helped me because I, I think I had, um, you know, a, a form of sexism embedded in my feminism 
that felt like anybody who, you know, wore big pink high heels, you know, was not for the cause. <laughs> um, so I think that's that's some of the work that I've done um, in this book, but also just culturally kind of some of the conversations we're having around the the biggest, broadest definitions of feminism and that we can, you know, join together. Hmm. I love that idea of gender as a sense, because I feel like it Encap- or it 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 uh includes both sort of the sense of gender as something that is sort of instinctive or natural, um, but also that it's something that can be cultivated and understood in different ways and uh, refined and like it sort of like contains the 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 paradoxes, you know, sort of that we are <laughs> we're kind of talking about. Yeah. Good. And I'm I'm glad I'm talking to a historian that the book held up okay. Now I'm nervous. I'm like, oh my gosh, an actual historian read my book. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's theoretically sound. I love <laughs> um, so um, you know, it's a little bit of time since the book first came out. We're looking at the um the paperback release now. Um, and in that time, have you had any new insights or new perspectives that make you view um the book in a new way? I mean, it just becomes more and more urgent. Mm-hmm. I just wish it hadn't, you know? I, I mean, I really wish this book had become, what what a weird and wacky thing to have happened to a family way back. Um, you know, like that, that makes no sense. You know, we, we've, we just kept making progress and making progress and making progress. And um, instead what well, we, we made some progress and then there was this enormous backlash. Um, I think one of the things that's really important for me in looking at the backlash, which is, you know, um, a lot of uh, Republican um, politicians making it part of their platform to be anti, to be proudly anti-transgender and anti-civil rights for trans people, um, as well as, you know, far right uh, podcasters and, you know, uh, people who are, you know, um, influencers and what have you, um, to gain followers, to get votes, to get money. Um to create fear and to pretend there's a and drum up, you know, here's a problem, here's a problem, here's a problem, panic, panic, panic. And mm-hmm. I'm the only person who can fix it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and even these, even, you know, kind of like thirsty comedians uh, who want to punch down on trans people because they think they're being countercultural when you're like, dudes, mm-hmm. are you kidding me? You're being so, <laughs> uh, yeah, in line with our culture. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I wish that it, it had, the book was a little footnote, you know, like to, to access a place in time and history where things were still not quite on the rails. Um, but instead I think, um, yeah, it's become, yeah, more urgent, um, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and lastly, uh, one more question, because, um, and this might seem like an obvious one off the bat, but, you know, obviously the the title of the book is Letters to My Transgender Daughter, and the book is written in the second person. Um, so you are literally writing directly to her. And I wondered also if that is um, perhaps like a, you know, a, a technique encouraging empathy for the, the in the reader, if that makes sense, you know, like, because I, I felt like I was being addressed myself you know, in addition to your daughter and in a, in a, you know, an interesting way that really did sort of directly and explicitly, literally invite me to step into her shoes in a strange way. Like, was that something that you thought about too? 
Well, you know, as soon as I figured it out, and a, a lot of it is like, you know, Between the World and Me by Tanisi Coates, and um, looking at that structure, uh, it just fixed a lot of problems on the pronoun level, <laughs> mm -hmm. because I could not write a book in which I was going to misgender my kid up until the, the whole backstory until she changes to the pronouns that mm -hmm. she identifies with there's just no way and then also every time I use it it's so loud it's so heavy it's so we 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 imagine you say he and little boy and we imagine a he and a little boy mm -hmm. and then I would have to flip everybody on that and I was like that's just such a heavy lift I, I don't I don't feel comfortable with it all the way through I want to get it right so the direct address of you allowed me to move to a non-gendered uh, pronoun for all of it which was, I think, very important for the reader because they couldn't gender the child constantly. Mm -mm. They had to keep an open mind on you, just as you have to keep an open mind on they, you know? Yes. So uh, so that was huge. When I figured that out, I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> um, also, uh, Between the World and Me is just a gorgeous, gorgeous book and doing incredibly important work. So, you know... Um, and then there's others, you know, letters to a young writer and other ones that use the direct address as well. But um, that was one thing. And then this other thing kind of snuck in, which is what you're talking about. And um, and it's, in particular, I've been moved by the responses um, from, you know, adults who are trans and how they've talked about their experience of the you, the direct address, and that it felt like, you know, what, what I what I. I hope it feels like, and I, again, like I didn't quite know this, but that once I say you like are deserving of love, the passages about love and about, you know, dignity and, and honor and respect. And uh, that, that you is this strange door and it, it does, it swings wide open between us. Um, and so it, it does, it is no longer my daughter receiving. It really becomes the you who are possibly receiving that. And for so many you know, adult trans people, um, they didn't get that from their families necessarily, um, that unconditional love. And so that I, I, I hope that, and, and I've, and, and some we've gotten, I've gotten some really moving responses to the book in that way. Um, as well as kind of gratitude for being able to, to look at a, a, a little kid, like a little kid going through, um, their own trans story and that witness part of it, I think was also, um, you know, helpful. Um, yeah. So yeah, you're, you're right. It's a very, it's in, you know, pronouns are powerful. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I was very lucky to find that entry point. Oh, well, that's a really lovely thought. And this has been a really lovely conversation and, you know, thank you so much for stopping by the show to talk about this, this lovely book. I'm really excited to share the new edition, uh, with our patrons. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate no it. You're very welcome. All right, listeners, please check out A Girlhood, Letters to My Transgender Daughter. I think you'll really appreciate it and you will learn something and feel something, uh, which is, you know, all that we can ask books to do. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. It is now time to close this chapter. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.